I'm Brandon Hull, and you're listening to Freelance to Founder. But this person, it was in a small cubicle of an office, slammed their hands on the desk and looked at me and said, oh, you West Pointers are all the same, right? It's yes sir, yes sir, three bags full, but that's not how we work here at Goldman Sachs. We need to be flexible and be able to adjust whenever situations arise and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not an automaton. We don't have robots in our military. Welcome to Freelance to Founder, where I dig into the stories of freelancers and solopreneurs who've scaled their businesses to something much bigger than themselves. I am sincerely so proud of our roster at Freelance to Founder of guests. We've had an amazing lineup of guests over the last two and a half to three years, and today's episode is yet another great one. In this episode, I'll introduce you to Michael Pratt. Offline, he's the CEO and co-founder of Panamplify, a really cool reporting tool specifically for digital agencies to use with their clients with features and a design that will blow away what you've seen from most white label solutions out there. Michael started Panamplify only after running Extra Sauce and leading business development at Carrot Creative, two different creative agencies in Dallas, Texas. He hated how much time is wasted in reporting to clients the work his team performed for them, which resulted in the pivot to Panamplify. But there is so much more to this story. Michael's West Point background, for example, his time spent on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. His story carries the spirit of our show, where a founder has one path straight ahead of them, but eventually follows another. And here's a fun fact for you. I discovered Michael through his no-holds-barred commentary on LinkedIn. He pulls no punches while weighing in on software's annoying bro culture, bad trends on social networks, and so, so much more. I challenge you to find him on LinkedIn and follow or connect with him. Michael Pratt, Pan Amplify. I literally LOL when I see most of his posts, and not because they're funny, but because he holds nothing back and it's so refreshing. And as always, stick with us to the very end where you'll hear Michael's poignant answers to one principle, one habit, and one person that has shaped his life. In just one moment, we'll get to my conversation with Michael Pratt. Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. Mike Pratt. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure to finally be face to face with you. I, uh, this has been a fun day to get to this point. I'm <laughs> For, glad to be here. But even the 45 minutes of conversation that led, that was pre record button being hit. Uh, I almost, I wish we had been recording that. Well, let's just repl- re- replicate it. We, we, well, there's no way we'll be able to do it again. You, uh, you're joining me in um, hotel room number X, uh, which will we not disclose, in beautiful Santa Monica, California. 
out here from Dallas. You're missing out on a trip to ESPN just for this conversation. So I'm very grateful for that. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for joining me. There, There's so much um, that we could and should and will talk about over the course of this conversation about you and Panamplify. Um, I guess just to level set for people, I will have already given my introduction about what Panamplify does and, and who you are. But if you could just tell listeners um, where Panamplify is today whatever numbers you want to use mm-hmm. uh, to kind of level set things. We're going to go back in time and talk about the story about how in the world did you get to what you're doing today? Sure, sure. And, uh, and I, it's a topsy-turvy uh, path that got, that got us here, but uh, we are thriving and uh, we are currently right two people, myself and my co-founder. Uh, we have about 15 customers. Uh, we, have, we are revenue positive and we are on our way to uh, getting to a million ARR, which uh, should place us well for a Series A sometime in the next 12 to 18 months, I hope. And it sounds like just this amazing success story that the two of you are about ready to scale everything. But if we go back in time and look at the history over these last few it's years. It's less amazing. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd say less amazing. In fact, it's more interesting than how you just portrayed well, it. It's a now. lot longer than I ever would have predicted, but isn't it always? <laughs> this was not the plan to be involved in the creative agency world. It was not the plan to start up a software provider of any kind, technology provider nope. to the agency world. Um, you're a former captain in the U.S. Army, yep. uh, West Point grad, Duke MBA grad, who then ran off to uh, to financial gardens in Wall Street. Uh, we've seen it all before. It chews people up, spits them out. Um, but that's that's the that was the plan all along. Throw a hedge fund in there too. Hedge think. fund hedge fund manager. Um, how could we have seen this coming? Did you always know you would be an entrepreneur at some point in time? We go back to you, the young Michael Pratt. Like, how could we have seen this if we looked in the rearview mirror? You know, it's funny. You, we didn't talk about this question, and it's a question I've now only recently started to think about. No, it's great, but uh, there, there's never been a plan ever, 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 ever. I've never. I did not have a dream at twenty. I, I did. I didn't. I felt com- called. To, uh, to go to an academy. I wanted to go, I applied to Navy and I got into Navy and those are the only two. I actually applied to Rice University as well um, and I uh, for undergrad. And I wanted, to, I, I wanted to serve my country. It sounds kind of foofy. I was patriotic and I, that's what I want to do. Now I wanted to be a Navy pilot, but I had bad eyes. I have LASIK now, so you don't see me in glasses. Um, and at the time you couldn't fly jets if you had, if you had corrective uh lenses. So I was like, I don't think I want to be on the bowels of a ship as my regular job. So I went to the land-based one instead. And that's how I went. So it wasn't a plan, but I went there. I didn't know what I was going to do after. Um, and it just up, it was a combination of wanting to do what I had evaluated at each step along the way that seemed like both a great opportunity, interesting, aligned with my character and my person. And, and that was that. It was not part of a long-term plan. I think it's uh, quite ironic that you would uh, make reference to it not being a part of the plan because it was not too long ago that you made a point of telling somebody about um, your philosophies on planning, the importance of planning, not for the purpose of executing a perfect plan, but being prepared for when the plan needs to go in the bin, needs to go in the trash, and you need to improvise a little bit. Like the planning has to happen first so that you can improvise 
when it all goes down. Wow, you really did your homework. Did you find out that one of my favorite books is um, a very obscure collection of um, of isms uh, called Patton's Principles? It was now, Patton. That's right. Now he's a famous um, West Point graduate as well, but. Uh, and you know, he had his ups and downs and he was a rowdy general and he was great, but, um, he was famous and I, I just, I think about it all the time. He was famous for saying, um, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, which does not, should not be interpreted as, well, therefore why plan? Because if you go into battle without a plan, then you have no, uh, true North to fight with and, and adjust from. So, but the moment your plan hits contact with the enemy, which applies in the software world or any other place you start a company, uh, you have to be able to okay, know how do we deviate from the plan as opposed to, well, we don't know. We don't have a plan. What do we do? So yeah, it's a great, um, that's, uh, that's it. That's how I do it. So yes, I do plan. But you plan so that you're ready for the, the sort of the, the unpredictable. You're ready for the, the unexpected. That's right. Well, you'll find, I, I found employees and your partners and the people you work with, they want to know that, that there's something they can hold on to in the absence of anything and adjust from. It's a lot different to adjust from something than to have nothing at all when faced with a, um, a crisis or whatever. It, there's a sense of security it gives people to know that you have something in mind, even though the actual <laughs> series of steps that might have to happen for your plan to come to fruition are unlikely. They like to know that you at least have something to start with, right? There's a sense of security that some people have from that. That's correct. Now, interestingly, you just reminded me of something. Um, it was one of my Goldman Sachs interviews. Um, it was with someone who I, I'm not even going to mention who it was with, but it was one of my last interviews. And I'll be honest and perhaps arrogant and cocky here, but it really annoyed me, this question. Um, it really got under my skin. But this person, it was in a small cubicle of an office, slammed their hands on the desk and looked at me and said, oh, you West Pointers are all the same, right? It's yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, but that's not how we work here at Goldman Sachs. We need to be flexible and be able to adjust whenever situations arise and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not an automaton. We don't have robots in our military, for starters. Secondly, I was like, two things. One, do you know how we attack and, and fight the Russians? We shoot the antennas. The reason we shoot the antennas, because antennas have radios attached to them, and radios have leaders attached to them. And if you kill the leaders in, a, in the Russian army, they it tends to destroy the organization because they're so rigid. There's no improvisational none, ability. None. That is the exact opposite. In our world, the captain or the colonel doesn't look at you and say, I need you to take this town as part of the overall battle plan. And here's how I want you to deploy all three platoons. You're going to have your first platoon go left and the second platoon go right. That's micromanagement. He says, I need you to take the town. How you do it is up to you. So I, I didn't end with this, but I want to be like, so don't tell me that I'm an automaton, you know, and I'm yes or yes or three bags full. <laughs> all right. So West Point is in the rearview mirror. Duke, then in the rearview mirror, how did you decide? I know you got an MBA with a finance uh, emphasis, but was Goldman Sachs the plan all along? Was Wall Street the plan all along? How do you think the answer to that question? I think the answer is yes on that. No, the answer is no. (laughs) Why? How am I wrong? There was no plan to go to Goldman Sachs and Wall Street. No, but once the days 
the Duke days are winding down and you're thinking what's going to happen as I walk out this. So I, I, I think I, 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 in hindsight, now that you're forcing me to think about this, I believe I live in a phase of, of small five-year plans, uh, so to speak. But beyond that, I, I just have no idea. But um, ironically, I took the, uh, the uh, GMAT in combat gear um, and was like, I don't, think I want to stay in the military because uh the wind down of the um after the Gulf War was um was just you know there was nothing to do right and so I didn't want to stick around doing nothing and so I said to myself what's the plan well the plan is let's try to get into a good school so got into duke said this is where I'm going to go great my essay to get into the duke into duke said I wanted I I said I wanted to be a brand manager for Procter and Gamble like on the Huggies account or something I don't. It's very specific. Why did I come up? I had to write yeah, an essay. That's a good question. Somehow it worked. I got in and I got there and I'm like, I don't want to be a Huggies brand manager. Uh, finance looks interesting. And so I started studying more and studying more. And then the Wall Street firms came and interviewed and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And so I said, what do I do now? Well, I should go intern. And so I did. I went and interned at Goldman Sachs in between years. So, uh, and I should not overplay uh, any sort of military analogies here, but you're the guy. <laughs> you're the guy who takes the hill and then says, "Now what?" As opposed to what's step two, what's step three, what's step four. Well, yeah. So it, I don't want to make good point. I don't want it to sound like I take the hill and I'm like, no idea what to do there. But um, you know, you assess about okay, what do we have to do after we take the hill? 42 steps down the road, um, you know, I'll segue. Building a model for a startup is also a lot like this planning thing. So in order to get funded, you have to have a model. And you have to, quote, have lots of up and to the right charts on revenue and customers and all sorts of things. And so you map it all out there and everybody, it's complete and utter BS, right? How do you know you're going to have 1,432 customers in year three? No one knows that. You have to show that confidence, though. That you have to you have to show that you've thought through what can happen if all things line up the way. That's they correct. And so you can start with the top line to understand sort of the total addressable market and all that kind of stuff. But the real way you model, most folks will talk to you, is that you start from the bottom up. Can we actually handle two customers? If we can't, do we need another person? And if how many people do we have to have to handle ten? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. What will revenue be? How fast is our pipeline coming in? Can I get ten customers in one month, or will I take three? That leads to the model growing to where you're at. And if you do that, and you're like, "Wow, remember when you thought it was fourteen hundred and thirty-two customers in three years? It's only six hundred, or whatever." All right. So you so going back in our time and chron- chronologically, so that what that means is then that you assessed your situation after completing your time at Duke. And evaluated what's possible next. What are some good logical next steps now that I've achieved X, Y, and Z? And Wall Street seemed like a good next step. Yes. Yeah, so based on where you were at that time, it then. did. Um, well, so some lots of things, and this is almost turned into something that maybe young folks can use as um, as career mapping, interest interest planning. How do I approach something that I'm I want to be or want to do? Um, because I made some critical mistakes, but got some awesome advice along the way to your question. So here's what I mean. So I was interested topically in finance. I had never worked in it. So how could I know what it's like to be in finance? Did I know the difference between an investment banker's life and a trader's life? I knew nothing. What about the trader versus the salesman? What about the research equity research person 
versus uh, the capital markets person. Those are all finance jobs. They all have MBAs doing them. And I didn't know the difference between any of them. Uh, so I, I go and do an internship thinking, okay, well, I'll probably get a chance to, you know, you know, taste test everything, which is exactly why they do Wall Street inter, uh, internships that way. And I still made a critical mistake because if you read Liar's Poker, the famous book by Michael Lewis, he talked about equities in Dallas as the basement of, you know, for Solomon Brothers that nobody wanted. And it's still like that. There are products in certain cities that are hot right now, partially because those markets can be hot or cold or whatever. And when I got to Goldman in 1993 for the internship, uh, international equities was hot. So I wanted international equities. That's what I wanted to be. I don't care what kind of job. I want to be in international equities. So I got offered a job after I got back from the summer internship, and it's uh, the, the fall of my second year at Duke, um, to be a salesperson um, in international equities. And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call from the mentor that was assigned to me and said, they decided they weren't sure that you really felt like you wanted to be a salesman. I was like, well, I don't care what I do. I just want to be international equities. But I want to know as to why the traders in the U.S. all wanted you. I'm like, I don't know. I really felt like, a, like I was akin to them and, and I, I enjoyed their job. But U.S. equities isn't hot right now. Now, it's 1993. You know what happened to U.S. equities about four or five years later? Dot-com bubble, ring a bell, right? I had no idea, but it wasn't hot in 1993. Matter of fact, it was the basement, and that's why I didn't want it. So the lesson was, harkening back to that famous book, What Color Is Your Parachute? I was focused on hot product as opposed to, do I want to sell? Do I want to trade? Do I want to um, do deals like a banker, which is a function, right? You can do deals in mortgage bonds, or you can do deals in equities in Paris, but it's, you're a deal person, or you're a trader person because you want to manage risk. Or you're a salesperson because you're a relationship manager, whatever, right? So uh, I realized that I needed to figure out the color of my my personality, job suited kind of relationship. And I was a trader. I, I was somebody that wanted to manage risk, and it didn't matter what I traded. So that sounds like you got into a world, or I'll call it an industry, for lack of a better term, but you got into something that you felt like was wise from an opportunity standpoint. But what seat you needed to fill on the bus, you needed to figure out. And once you got into that industry, both you could check both boxes. You were in a, in a space that you wanted to be in and you found the right seat for you. Right. So I found the right seat for my skill set, right? It wasn't the right product at the time. It was, it was not a hot product, but that was fine. And also interesting, like Wall Street was going, had a, you know, there was a bond crash in 94. So it wasn't, it wasn't doing really well. No one knew that the Telecom Act of 96 was around the corner. No one knew that the dot-com bubble of 99 and all that was around the corner. Um, and so I was right place, right time. You know, I, I had a lot of right place, right times uh, in my career, which are very Forrest Gumpy. Um, I mean, what are the odds that I'm in the army unit that's like on the Berlin Wall when it comes down in 89? What are the odds? What are the odds that I get to see Pink Floyd do a concert on the Berlin Wall? What are the odds? I, I was just there. I didn't know. You're too young to have lived a life like I, this already. And then, oh, it gets even better. <laughs> what are the odds I, I join Wall Street in a sleepy backwater sector that no one cares about? And the next thing you know, I'm trading all these telecom and uh, AOL and Time Warner in the midst of the greatest bubble known to man. 
What are the odds that I'm staring out the window of the 50th floor of Goldman Sachs watching two planes fly into the buildings next door? What are the odds? Crazy, weird, bizarre. But yeah, yeah. And then uh, so left in 03 to run a statistical arbitrage uh, high, high frequency trading shop, which was fun. And, you know, we placed servers on exchanges and running fiber optic lines and trying to uh, arbitrage little nickels off of, uh, of, of, of trades and places. There's a great book called Flash Boys, which, which covers all of that. Um, we were there doing that, and that was a lot of fun. That was a, a ton of fun. But something must have started to click in your mind that said, I know you're not a planner. But, but uh-huh. dissatisfaction, Touché. Touché. dissatisfaction had to start to be settling in because change was on, change was afoot. Uh, so at it some wasn't point in time, so the much gears dissatisfaction, okay. actually. So <sighs> you weren't doing anything on the side or anything like no, that. No, right? no, 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 no. So um, there's there's a backstory that's that 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 has to be uh, mentioned real quick. So I had the media, entertainment, and telecom sector for ten years, and I knew it pretty well from the top down. I had gone to uh, you know a tavern on the green for all the upfronts um, during uh, the spring. And I really knew the media uh, sector well. Second, I didn't fit the traditional Wall Street model of boondoggles and partying. You know, I wasn't a party to the Merrill Lynch, you know, fidelity midget tossing fiasco down in Miami Beach that they got fined for. Uh, Goldman just wasn't like that. They were really, you know, um, tight about uh, all of that. And back in that those days. Traders at Wall Street firms didn't really like talking stocks to their counterparts. They just wanted to go drink. Now, I'm not against going drinking, uh, mind you, but I'm like, how do I get to know my companies better? And so I started you know, buddying up with all the analysts who would then take me to go meet all the portfolio managers on the client side. And they, I was like a zoo animal. They never saw traders before. And I liked to talk about the companies and the numbers of the companies and how they worked. And it made me a better trader. And next thing you know, I've got relationships with folks I never thought I would have relationships. Why did it make you a better trader? Did you feel like being on the you could you could speak from the perspective of being an insider and you knew the lay of the land a little bit more, or was it a little bit more? Not so much the insider, but lay of the land is spot on. So uh, any marketplace. It's funny pre pre uh, discussion. You you talk about the word marketplace. It's critical to know that a marketplace is merely the collection of opinions on the value of the items in the marketplace by the players in that marketplace. It is a representation of that collective opinion. That's fair value, okay? That's all that it is. The more people in that marketplace, the more accurate that collection of opinions can be. So it's also a forward-thinking opinion on the value of the cash flow and the earnings of the company in the future. But everybody has an opinion on that since it hasn't happened. With that in mind, that those opinions are formed by the people buying and selling. So if you know the inside of the brain of the biggest people that are doing the buying and selling, you can map and understand. You can know things like, oh, I trade radio companies. I happen to know that the three biggest PMs in radio companies like to buy it when it gets to 10 times EBITDA and sell it at 15. And I happen to know that two are buying it right now because it's a 10 times EBITDA. So I can talk to them. That's how it all works. It's just a puzzle of of all the players. Is so, is any of this um, woven into your DNA, your hardwiring, or is it coming from some experiences? 
wisdom you gained in your military career? Where, where did you feel? Good question. I don't, Do you know? I, I don't have a, a no an eloquent answer for, for, for that. <laughs> I mean, I made, it's just in, how you approach things and it worked, seemed to work for you. I, I, I majored in aerospace engineering cause I thought it was interesting. I've never been an aerospace engineer uh, because I didn't want to wear a white lab coat at Allied Signal. And that's really the reason. But I did do an internship uh, my junior year in, uh, at West Point at McDonnell Douglas. Um, and that was really cool. But I was like, I don't want to do this. Uh, does that play into my ability as a trader? Oh, heck yes. Um, but I guess my point was you were really talking about the, um, the, the, the unorthodox segue from Wall Street. So there's a little bit of personal involved and there's a little bit of opportunity involved. And there's a little bit of like, you know, all the collections of things that built up to that moment involved. Um, but it wasn't a plan. <laughs> so I, I know a guy who, and I'll tell you what that is. Who's a tech startup uh, in Chicago uh, guys had been involved in numerous startups and he is, he likes to highlight in his social profiles that he's a recovering wall street investment banker recovering. That's a keyword. <laughs> so I think I thought I think it's interesting when people sometimes will make reference to they survived the finance world and now are doing I don't know <laughs> the Lord's work or something. They're doing real work now, and before they were doing s- some other bidding or something like that. It is uh, it is absolutely a spot on characterization, and yeah, I kind of survived as well. My first marriage didn't, uh, unfortunately, and that's a that's a casualty, and I bear as much responsibility there, but. It, it does chew you up and spit you out. The hours are ridiculous. Uh, the intensity is 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 unbelievable. It's like combat. Uh, it is a lot like combat. Um, it's intense. It's intense. Now, no one's life is on the line. It's just dollars, and dollars do a lot of bad things to a lot of people, and they can corrupt. You know, dollar can, dollars can corrupt, as we all well know. But anyway, so uh, so there's a pivot. So the pivot. You, you became, what I know is you became the director of business development at Carrot Creative. Not until I got to Dallas, though. Okay, so talk about what led to that uh, little sojourn. So we're running the hedge fund. We're doing well. Um, we're doing well. Now, it's a volatility-based hedge fund. The more volatility there is, the better it does. We're doing well. Um, we're basing it out of Greenwich, Connecticut. Life is going pretty well. Um, but uh, I've got two young sons uh, that are starting to suffer, apparently, from dyslexia. And the schools in New York really did not approach it very well. And Dallas has a school called the Shelton School, which is quite well known for its approach to uh, dyslexia, which in it, in, incorrectly gets lumped into behavioral issues when it's really, and it's not a disability, it's a difference. I mean, John Chambers, the CEO of, of Cisco is dyslexic. He's not stupid, trust me. Um, but uh, dyslexic children read spatially as opposed to linearly like we do. And if you try to teach a dyslexic child to read linearly, they can't. So we moved to Dallas um, in 09. And 09 was, you know, the months after the big nasty crash of 08. And the economy was in the toilet. And that was fine um, because I wasn't, my hedge fund wasn't based on the economy. And you can run a hedge fund from anywhere. Matter of fact, one of my partners already moved to Boca. Um, And so we only had one guy left in, in Greenwich. But uh, volatility goes to zero after a crash. Everybody pulls the cards close into the vest, and our hedge fund got really boring. So there's there's no volatility. We were just trying to find strategies to trade, and it was like squeezing blood from a stone, you know. And all it was awful, awful. It was just boring. And when you know we had done well enough that it wasn't there was no impetus, and 
so we you could tell that was a fertile field, the boring part of the hedge fund, et cetera. So here that this segues into the the story I always like telling. So I was friends with a guy named Mike Germano who ran Carrot Creative. They subsequently got bought by Vice. Um, Mike had helped uh, uh, my my then wife out with one of her companies. He said, "Why don't you come on board?" Because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and uh, I knew you know volatility, et cetera. But we were still running the hedge fund, and so I started doing that. Um, but I wasn't going to be long term at Carrot, right? This was kind of like. Mike was giving me a placeholder okay. and he was being cool about that. Helping you transition. To he was, he was. And I life, brought in some clients. Um, you know, we got a great uh, gig um, uh, invited in by the Dallas Cowboys. You didn't have some, some sort of affinity for creative agencies or anything no. like that? No. Now remember, was, I traded them. Thing. Yeah. They were in my sector. I yeah, knew but, them but really well. The idea of working in one, never, never, never drawn never. to do that. It gets way better. So there was never going to be something long-term at Carrot. It was, like I said, it was a way station. So here it is, 2010. And I'm up in New York having lunch with an old friend who was a Goldman client. His name is Fareed Suleiman. He's long since retired to, um, you know, I'm sure a palatial estate in in, uh, in Florida. But Fareed at the time uh, at Goldman was uh, the number two man at uh, CBS Infinity and uh, radio station company run by Mel Karmazin, who left to go run um, uh, Sirius XM. And Fareed is a crazy Tanzanian. I think he'll appreciate me calling him that. He is unbelievable. Smartest guy in radio I've ever met. And Fareed's famous. He's got a Wikipedia entry for um, having been the one that fired uh, Howard Stern from K-Rock, who sent him to satellite when he joined Mel. So Fareed leaves, and he and Teddy Forsman do an LBO and take uh, Citadel Broadcasting, the number three company, private uh, in Radioland. So it was Clear Channel, Cumulus, and Citadel. Traded all of those companies. I knew them fairly well. So why am I up in New York having lunch with Fareed? Well, he had a he had a love and ran and was a part owner of a uh, involved with a um, a elephant sanctuary in Tennessee with that rehabilitated old circus elephants. And I was helping him out and involved with that. And we had become friends and we were up, I was up in New York having lunch in 2010, um, lamenting about the fact that there's no volatility, not sure what I wanted to do. He's complaining to me. We were there to talk elephants, but we started talking shop and he's complaining to me and bitching that Pandora is kicking his butt. He has no digital strategy, doesn't know what to do, doesn't even have a streamer and he has 600 radio stations. So we kept talking. I knew the industry fairly well. And um, we left there with a handshake for me to start an agency and a half a million dollar contract to fix Citadel's digital. So there you go. Now I run an agency. <laughs> this trip, Where's the plan? This trip to Tennessee, by the way, how long was it? Three days, five days? No, I didn't go to Tennessee. That's where his elephant oh, sanctuary, sanctuary was. was. Yeah, that's I was just in New York City oh, okay. having lunch. Okay. So this is a, this is a, that was not the plan whatsoever. It was another one of those moments where timing, People you know, opportunity, all of these get swirled into one Completely. bowl and, uh, yeah. and out comes a new product. Yeah, yeah. In your case, a new career. Yeah. Um, and, Did it, and it required you, obviously, to conclude your time in Wall Street, right? I mean, you were- Yeah, we shut down the fun. Down. We yep. shut down the fun. It, it gets even better from here. Oh, boy. Funny story. And in hindsight, is we laugh. We didn't laugh at the time. So um, I was in Dallas for a year. I, I was- I really tried hard to get into the scene, the Dallas startup scene, you know, having, there was 
Dallas had a lot of telecom, but and but but Lucent and Alcatel, Nokia and stuff like that, after they kind of imploded, hurt Dallas a lot. And it, it had come out of that. Still had AT&T, but um, it, it had a startup scene that was really burgeoning. It was clearly about 10 years behind New York, which was 10 years behind Silicon Valley. And I tried to immerse myself into that scene, you know, just for networking purposes as well as an all right thing, because I'm not from Dallas um, and DFW, and there's 8 million people there. And so it's a really not a, you know, it's a big secret of like, wow, that's really big. Um, and, uh, you know, we're stealing all the companies from California, sorry. Um, but so there we are. And I had just got this half a million dollar contract from Fareed. Um, I'm like, well, I need a CTO because I'm going to do some techie stuff here. <laughs> I need a creative director too. And I had a couple of folks in mind. And I went and and we talked, we had dinner. Um, we uh, went to a place called the Capitol Grill in Dallas and, and uh, yeah, and it, it worked out and they both left their companies and we are just excited. We've got this, you know, we've got a, we've got a girl to dance with and it hits the newswire that, that uh, Cumulus, the number two radio company is going to buy Citadel, the number three and Fareed, who's my friend. And deep relationship goes dark. And I don't have the contract back and no check. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant, or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to Hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. All 
All right, you've had a chance to get the backstory on Michael and what led him to the agency world to begin with. That backstory was important because it helps you understand how his brain works and so forth. And now I want you to take you to the back half of this conversation where you learn how and why Michael pivoted along the way and the numerous setback moments he faced with his staffing, with his funding, and more. It's not always rainbows and unicorns and sunshine and glory when you start up a company, as many of you know. Let's hear Michael's story for how he handled his transition to Pan Amplify. So we had the come to Jesus talk with the two other guys and we're like, look, you got to go back to your company. It's, it's cool. I get it. And they're like, so, Hey, do you know any other Goldman clients? Cause I don't know if I want to go back, you know, I'm like, all right, let's go try. We actually went and, and landed Smirnoff, um, believe it or not. Um, and some work with that, but two months later, not two days, two months Without a phone call, he would not return my call calls. I got a call from Fareed, deeply apologetic. Um, check is in the mail. I'm so sorry. The FTC put the kibosh on me talking to anybody. I wasn't allowed to call you. And I'm like, yeah, you stressed me out for two months, buddy. It's the company that Fareed hand- dropped in my lap. We literally went down to a place called State and Allen, drank a lot of beer. We had GoDaddy on our mobile phone. We were looking for domain names and we were looking for something that met the cool, sexy agency mantra. Right. I and, just want to make sure we got the names. Yeah. yeah. Extra the sauce. Story. So we had t-shirts that we gave yep. away at South by said, everyone likes a little extra sauce. They were huge hits. Still own the domain name, still own the company name. <laughs> you you didn't just get going with extra sauce and you didn't just go hustle as the kids say now Not to go pick a business. I know, I know. That's why I say it with disdain. But you you didn't just do that. You, you start up Digital Dallas around this time. Like you knew how wise it would be to play your angles um, because this is a, it's a big city. That's fair. A lot of agencies, thousands of agencies yep. we discussed before we yes. hit the record button and you realize you're going to have to do maybe some extraordinary things to, to stand out. Digital Dallas maybe being one of many of those things, right? There was, well, I perhaps, yeah, I, I don't disagree with your characterization. There was also a mildly altruistic thing, but it was also self-serving, but. And, and I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, paint I it knew, the wrong way. Yeah, no, no, no. You're painting it the correct way. I'm just saying there's more to it. It was, <laughs> it was a little bit altruistic. I wanted to do something community oriented. Multiple boxes that could be checked for that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You could be the one that spearheads this wonderful, uh, wonderful organization that brings people together, right? But it doesn't hurt that slash that, benefit from it. <laughs> that you, exactly, that you're the guy from Extra Sauce who helped you know make those connections possible. That was not lost on me. But uh, I will tell you, you know, I didn't come up with the idea. The guy that started Care Creative founded an organization called that I mentioned to you, Mike, Digital Dumbo, because oh. Dumbo is the epicenter of a lot of companies in Brooklyn, in New York City, and. He created this organization and, there, and, he, and he had a certain formula that he used, like no name tags, make people showcase the good work. The objective of it was to bring people together and put Dumbo on the map as a force to be reckoned with. And I got to Dallas and I'm like, where's the digital Dumbos of the world? They didn't exist. Where's the community? It would just kind of wasn't there. And a lot of stuff's happened in a couple of years. I started Digital Dallas. Um, the, the deck, which is the Dallas Entrepreneur Center, got started. A bunch of these things all kind of got started. And uh, it was, again, it felt like it needed to happen. I knew if I did it, it would be a bit of a pain at first, yeah. but it would help and help me. And from a startup standpoint, whether it's technology or, or agencies or anything like that, just looking... 
from outside the it, being in the weeds, like we have been about the storyline, when you step out of it and you think about how people go about building things and gaining, uh, uh, building a network or uh, gaining awareness of who you are and what, and what company you represent and, and that sort of thing. If you had to do it all over again, would you do the, would you probably do some of the same things? Would you start Digital Dallas? Would you would you go about finding clients the same way? And do you think that those things are essential? Do you think the way you went about it, it's essential to step outside of your agency world, finding a client, landing a client, and find ways to be bigger than that? Uh, As well, a founder, well phrased question. Essential. It's certainly helpful. Can it be done other ways? Perhaps, meaning it's not essential. Sure, you could just do brass knuckle selling, but, right? You uh, just go land but, clients. Yeah, um, but uh, it played to my personal strengths, mm. which made it the way that worked best for me. And what would you call those strengths if we haven't talked about them yet? What What are those strengths that, is it is it community building? Is it facilitating connections between people? What is the skill or the attribute you have that makes that, attractive to you going that going that route attractive to you right um i it's funny i know some people who who are characterized by others as the best putter of people together people that they've ever seen and i don't i don't i don't know that i rank in that 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 echelon i don't know that i spend all day you know you should meet so and so and all that kind of stuff like that although i do a little bit of it right um but i don't know that i'm a professional at it so it's not that um but i this is a great question, and I feel naked answering it. But um, because it's it's, I, I'm looking back now and evaluating the path, and you know, we'll talk. We'll get to Digital Fight Club, which was birthed out of Digital Dallas and all of that. And um, there's there are certain things that I do in the creation of these events, and I weave that into some of the stuff with my day job and all that, right? Because that's a labor of love. Um, that help maintain the integrity of the event. And I won't deviate from it because I know in my heart that I have, to, that has to be done. Now I'm, I'm, I wonder sometimes, can I hand that off to somebody without it dissolving? I don't know that I can do that yet. I'm, I've been wondering, is it possible? But there's a, there's a certain like genuineness I want to maintain with how I do it. And, um, and I brought that to digital Dallas. Um, so for example, and I, and I borrowed a few steps from the playbook. Uh, feel free to use this um, if it works. Um, so I wanted to showcase Dallas. That was it. And I wanted to bring people together as a community. And that was number two. So if you, if you stop there and you say, what do I have to do in order for that to be achieved? As opposed to, I want to be famous. I want to make money off this. I want to be known for this. I want to do that or like that. Like what showcases Dallas and how do we get people there? So like I curated the, 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 the initial audiences and I just kind of like strong. I'm like, look, I want you to go here. Trust me. I'm, this is going to work. I need you there. And I don't want you to wear a name tag because I don't want it to be name tag bingo where people just vacuum up, vacuum. I like to say vacuuming up business cards, right? That doesn't make for it. And hey, showcasing company, I want you to buy beer for people. That's it. I don't need you to sponsor. Just buy them some beer. So I suspect I made this. And it worked. I made this challenging of a, a thing to talk about because um, I suspect people like you enjoy building this sort of micro community 
within a community, the Dallas-Fort Worth marketing community, let's say, and you've built this community within that community, and you have genuinely done it for purposeful reasons that that are, uh, I might be borderline to call it humanitarian or altruistic, but they are genuine. Yeah, they are genuine pushing in nature. It. Well, they're genuine in nature. Like you, you could have done this as a as an event that Extra Sauce puts on. Instead, you did it maybe as the CEO of Extra Sauce, but more so under the digital Dallas. It has no, there's no agenda. Digital Dallas. The purpose of it is to bring people together. You're an appendage to that through Extra Sauce. So I think what makes the the question difficult is you genuinely did it for good reasons. And so to analyze it as a business development initiative or something like that feels a little wrong or a little, maybe a little bold. But good, to, to good way of putting way. it. I but just that, had that's a, the, that is a natural result of it though. When you do that. Absolutely. Well, you just, you just spurred a thought. Um, uh, so I've, I've said great things about Chris and this is not a criticism of him, but I remember him asking me, he's like, you know, got to make sure you let everybody know about Pan Amplify and the company and they got to know about that. Right. And that's, that's the whole reason we're doing this. I'm like, I hear you. And he's right. But he's like, however you do that, do it the right way. And I don't know what that looks like. And he was right there because he didn't really know what it looked like. But I've always thought people see right through if they know that I'm just doing this as a shill for my day job. So I don't make it look like a shill for my day job. But if I, I couldn't tell you how many investors I've gotten out of doing this kind of stuff, how many customers I've gotten out of doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, I... It's. I never talk about my company on stage. Right. I say where I work, and that's the extent of it. But people figure it out. LinkedIn kind of helps. Sure. So I feel like we could talk about Digital Fight Club uh, like at length because I'm fascinated by Digital Dallas, Digital Fight Club, and how they have become. They've taken on a brand. They've become their own brands, obviously. And I'm sure people who may never do business with you still will always appreciate that you have been the person who's helped put on these events. Yeah. Having said that. <laughs> We want to talk about your business too. No problem. <laughs> so See, that's my that's my magic, right? <laughs> that is I, absolutely. I, I I draw you out to talk about it. <laughs> Extra sauce is motoring along, but something emerges to you and your your partner that there is a new opportunity here from a technology standpoint that you've got to pursue. Tell me about that. The and you don't have to you don't have to go too much in detail on about both pieces, but the two pieces that I'm curious about are where did the genesis of the idea come from that you that there's this opportunity and how, and then transition into how you decided to make the decision to pivot from being an agency to doubling down on what would become Pan Amplify. So we'll set the stage with that. Um, I did not come up with this. Half the stuff I say I didn't come up with. Um, I did come up with Digital Fight Club, but uh, this this I did not. Uh, and I love the um, the analogy and the uh, the framework for understanding. But there's really two kinds of startups, okay? In terms of genesis of the startup, um, one's really, really, really hard. Well, they're both hard, um, and but one's a unicorn crapshoot, and, and it happens. And let's call that the Instagram model, okay? Not a not a, is not a critique of Instagram by any means, and that is Instagram. There's a great Wired article about this. Um, but back when um, Yahoo Photos uh, was, um, Yahoo, no, Yahoo bought them. Flickr. Flickr was bought by Yahoo, right. Flickr had no sharing capabilities, had no filtering, but it was basically the 800-pound gorilla for, for photos, if you, if you recall. So the Wired article talked about um, one of the co-founders, the two guys that just stepped down from Facebook uh, for Instagram, said, you know, if I take Flickr, 
and I cut out all of its parts and I add sharing, put it on the phone only and put in filters, it will explode with a new behavior. Darn it if he wasn't right. That's Now, that's very difficult. It's a one in a thousand kind of thing. And it was a create something out of almost nothing thing. That's not our startup. We're in the other bucket, which is probably more common, but I don't have data to support it. And that is another analogy. I'm bleeding. My co-founder here knows how to build a Band-Aid to stop the bleeding. I wonder if everybody else is bleeding. If everybody else is bleeding, we could sell Band-Aids. That's the, I found a problem, I experienced a problem, or I saw a problem, and I happen to know someone or have the ability myself to fix that problem. Well, and and you didn't phrase it this way because the way you phrased it was much more colorful, but it's also the whole scratch your own itch issue where we have this problem and we're in the position to fix it. It's not just that we have this problem. We think other people might have it. You were in a position that you could actually start to build the solution for that problem. True. But the other, the, the reason I mentioned the other people, because if you're the only one that has it, great, go build your problem, fix your thing, but you don't have a market. So we, um, and the problem was we're running an agency and I can describe it this way in service companies. There are two kinds of service companies for purposes of this illustration. Those by which the service they provide require technology in the provision of that service. So marketing agencies, of course, tech heavy. Uh, Financial services, tech heavy. Lawyers, not tech heavy. Throw out the non-tech heavy service provider types. If you require technology in the delivery of of your service, um, and a brand gives an agency money, they have to go do marketing stuff with that money using tech. That tech crunches and provides a lot of data. Then they have to tell the person who gave them the money what they did with the money. What did the money do for us? What happened in the interim? Did we meet our objectives? All that sort of stuff. They do that by crunching out this gigantic PowerPoint that they call a report periodically. Everybody has to do it. When there's a ton of data and platforms and tech involved in the delivery of the service, the creation of that report is a massive burden and cost them a lot of time and money. It was killing us. And it's not exactly a fat margin business running an agency. And as a side note, yes. having been in the agency world, it also is time that is taken away from the 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 way the time should be spent, which is the strategic thinking. Like what here's what the data tells us. What can what yeah. what do we need to The things you get paid for. Right. You spend Client billable time building the port report that will tell them Correct. how things stand, which is silly. What kind of reporting are we talking about here? What what data are you talking about? Like I I can imagine coming from a little bit of agency knowledge, but a listener might not know exactly what kind of data you're talking about. So what are the data points that we're talking well, about here? It's um, I'm going to rephrase your question if okay. you don't mind. Um, the data is the last thing that goes into a report. Okay. Now we get asked this a lot because you know why should anybody be thinking about this difference? But the word dashboard is used all the time. There's dashboards and reports, and they are not, are not, are not synonymous. Ferrari has a dashboard. It's where the word comes from. The Ferrari creates data, lots of it. Not all of the data is presented in the dashboard. What is? Only the data the driver needs to perform his function, nothing more. Not only that, it's represented in the way that optimizes his function as a driver. So... 
let's go to the back to the when the your feeling that uh, this needed to exist was the whole scratch your own itch, as you put it in a different, much better way. Um, did you talk to other agency owners and find out and and learn that this is a something that's been gnawing on them as well in your Dallas community, or did you just feel like I'm going to quietly work on this <laughs> with Christopher? No, and see no, there's no quiet. There was no quietly work on it. No, we immediately as I told you before we started uh, recording um we we were both big disciples of the lean methodology out of the valley we were big disciples of steve blank and his customer development process which forces you to get out of the office we interviewed 150 agencies um in dallas out of dallas all the goldman relationships i had and they were all kind enough to do it i got them all to send me example reports that they had literally delivered to clients with nda signed now i joke I have them still on Dropbox. It's a, they're about four years old now, but I thought it would make the greatest insider industry Tumblr ever published, but I get in so much trouble <laughs> if I just put all 150 out there for the world you'd to be, see. You'd have to do it. You'd have to be an anonymous hero to do such a thing. In yeah. Ways. Yeah. But it was really, really interesting. And I, we learned a lot from it and saw where, what they were bleeding, but they were how, all- How much time did it take you to do to start to conduct this research? It took about 12 months. Okay. So over the course of time, while you're running your agency, you're also doing this- Yep. So this, uh, I'll call it an internal side project, but this little skunk works, exactly what it it's was. like a skunk works project yep. basically, right? Where yep. you're, you're, you're doing your market research to determine if it's when the right time is to pivot, because it sounds like to me, like you kind of had this hunch that, oh, we need to do this. Absolutely. Well, so we did, we felt once we kind of started getting market validation that we weren't the only ones bleeding. And this is anecdotal market validation early on, right? No, this I is mean, from the, well, it's from the the, the, the interviews. Right, 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 right. After some point, you're on your 23rd one. They're like going, oh, I hate this. I yeah. spend a week but on it. But people aren't paying you. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no product. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But they're all saying it. <laughs> yes. Now, they could all have been BSing, but they, it was pretty genuine. They're like, I'm, you, ask, you ask them questions that they can't lie about or don't want to tell you what you want to hear. How long does it take you to build this report? They're going to give you a decent picture, right? Um, anyway, so we had a come to Jesus meeting at the uh, agency. I forget when it was, but it was several years ago um, where we said, hey, guys, I think we're at 15 people at this point. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to stop being an agency. We're going to get rid of our sexy agency office. Who wants to eat ramen? We're going to have a product company. All hands raised, no doubt. Two, me and Chris. Everyone left, which we knew. They all went on to other agencies and did their own things because they weren't, that's not what they signed up for. And that's fair. So we did that and we got to, uh, we got started on everything. Um, and if I ever give startup people advice, I always point out this one thing because their jaws drop. Um, the startup world is riddled with folks that, that were never guided properly or didn't have the cojones to, um, to deliver a minimum, 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 not ready for prime time thing that someone would pay for. It just feels wrong, right? It's not ready. I can't do this without a payment system. I can't do it. I'll only have one shot with all of these potential clients. If they see an ugly version of it, it's going to look unprofessional, blah, blah, blah. So to that end, we, uh, of course, the interviewing of the 150 agencies, of course, provided um, fodder for determining who was going to be an early adopter. Who was going to be, you know, not crazy and would work with us and, you know, would be okay that this thing had a lot of duct tape. We've, we, had, we had one that was bleeding. Uh, they 
gave us a report to build, and we built it. Guess how? By hand, just the same way they did. So you might say, well, why would you do that? That's nothing. That's not a product. I'm like, no, 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 no. We needed to validate that if we just gave them the report, they would pay us for it. And what would they pay us for it? We weren't quite sure. We used that to figure out what's the pricing model here. And we kind of figured it out. Why We said, we took the interview of 150 agencies, figured out how many hours they were spending on this collectively for each client, figured it all out and said, where do we get to the... Um, What's the word? The, uh, the, 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 no, the no question. Like, boom. Can't. The no-brainer. That was it. Sorry. The no-brainer. Where we, where's, no, where's no-brainer price? And that, you know, often there's a lot written about it. It's a, it's a bit of a, an inexact science, but it was around 10x cheaper than what they were collectively doing. And so we just said, all right, fine, 10x. Divide by 10 of the number we kind of came up with. That's what we're going to charge you. They said, fine, here. And they paid actually a little bit too easily. So we actually ratcheted it up a little bit, right? We, 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 we had to, and then we, we started getting a smidge of feedback and, and resistance. We're like, I think we're settling in to our price point. How many clients did you do this for, by the way? One. So you had one client you were building these manual reports for, yeah. but it all, what it also did was if you build reports their way, it gives you a moment or an opportunity to quantify the number of hours that they're probably spending at a minimum to build a report. Oh yeah, I mean, so it, helped, it helped. We, remember, since we had had the problem ourselves, sure. we had a rough idea to start with, but right. more data is better in that regard. And that definitely helped us refine it because that that helped the uh, the sales process get better and better and better. But of course, that's not scalable. It's not repeatable. It's none of that sort of, and that wasn't the point. But then we started getting more and it started pushing us as to, okay, well, what parts of the, I mean, Chris had uh, core foundational infrastructure stuff with the way our internal assembly model started to work. Plus, you know, he had to build connectors, you know, and, and all that. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and, you know, there's still... And he's the single developer doing it. At this that. time, it's just me and him. Yeah, but he's been, you know, we're both guys in our 50s. So, uh, you know, he's a computer scientist um, with, you know, some ridiculous credentials and he can build anything he wants. But the, so there's a point at which you 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 realize, obviously we're onto something. We know people will pay for this. We know what it's worth. We know what the alternative is because um, we lived it, and now we've seen so many other people and who um, we've gotten feedback from. Uh, but we were going to have to scale this, and in order to do that, we're going to need funding. We're going to need to do more than just the two of us can pull off. And so you did that. Yep. You pick up a, a over a million in funding. Um, a little bit of time goes by. And everything goes hunky dory, right? Uh, the funding leads you to the promised land, and that's how we are. We are. We are where we are today. And you're ready to now take the next step in your Series A, right? End of the end of the story. End of there. story. And, and and you're right. I went out and bought my Tesla and uh, and uh, lived happy ever after, as you're supposed to do. Right. I've noticed all of the um, move to the, the valley, and that's right. Cheap. You're walking down, uh, you know, important streets down in downtown Dallas talking into your phone, telling the stories for all your LinkedIn followers and everything as well, right? That's so right. they can learn from you. And in my car, because everybody likes LinkedIn <laughs> selfies in the car, you know, or hey, gonna, hey, hey, LinkedIn peeps, I just want to share time, some thoughts. We're going to talk about that, by the way, because that's how we first met each other. I was know, I know. This conversation, but no, so, but in all seriousness, you do, you pick up funding and so many stories, uh, at least from the headlines, you pick up the funding and then the, well, that just accelerates everything. You picked up funding, but then things had to grind to a halt. Right. So, well, picked up the funding. Just, you know, I won't dwell on this for like that, but there were 286 um, uh, pitches 
to land eight investors, one of which was a lead. And, you know, that was a, that, that everybody says it's a beatdown. It is a beatdown. Moving on to the next point. Um, I mean, I, I really did not enjoy that. Uh, but, but I believed in it and we got it and it was, and it was, we stuck to it. We, we did. We went out to disrupt um, and that was fantastic and fun. Um, and, uh, and actually the people from the uh, HBO show Silicon Valley were at disrupt with us that year. And that was like really, really cool because I just really liked that show is very, very funny um, slash half true. Um, so we were very particular with the money. We hired very slowly um, and we, we sped it, cast a net across the United States we, um, you know, you're juggling a lot of things. This, there's a lot of infrastructure to our product. There's um, onboarding and there's efficient, you know, that take that there's a lot of onboarding uh, and you, it's not an out of the box. We do not, it's, it's SaaS, it's delivered as a service, but um, it's a B2B, uh, you know, so like think of the Salesforce, right? Salesforce has a solo, you don't get to talk to anybody, $200 product. And they have, you know, they, they get, tens of millions of dollars from the Pfizer's of the world who have, you know, 70 people teams on there. So we're kind of in the middle of that. And what do you build first? You know, you have infrastructure and you have report generators and you've got the, the, uh, the front end stuff that the customers face. You know, we delivered that report with no front end. No one logged into anything, you know, and people are like, how'd you get them the report? I emailed it to them. They didn't care if they will buy your thing via email you're on to something. So guess what? We have an interface now. So even though it's a SaaS product, you're still delivering the output. Out, yeah. That product. yeah. SaaS is just Old the, the pipe by which, through which you deliver it, of course. So, um, you know, things went very, very well and there was growth happening, but as you know, I'll be, I'll just be very frank. Um, you have runway and you have to manage the growth with the runway and the two can't cross. Um, and if they do like ours did, you have to make very difficult choices. Uh, we're in the midst of trying to extend our round. Some things happened uh, and that fell through. We'll, we'll leave that for another day. And uh, we decided, you know what? We believe in this product. Things are going great. Most of the numbers are up and to the right, albeit maybe slowly, um, but we're on to it. But um, at this burn rate, we just scuttle the company. So, How did, how did that feel? Uh, what, uh, like what was, crap. <laughs> what, what did you... How did you cope going through that? I mean, because I could see that you still believe in where you're going and yet you're not getting there as quick as you want or other circumstances get in the way or something like that. And they and they cloud the vision maybe a little bit, even though you still believe the, the product by itself is still outstanding. The service that surrounds it is still outstanding. Other mitigating factors can sometimes come into the picture that derail things that you could have never predicted and you don't have any control over. So I understand all of that, but still leaves you in a situation where you are forced to grapple with it emotionally, right? Right. So, well, two things. You're right. There, there's, there's, should you continue? That's a very non-emotional business decision that has to be evaluated in, in that vacuum of emotionlessness, if you will. Um, and we did go through that. We were in a position to be able to handle and go through that. Well, at least I was, and, and Chris was because of his background as well. But I mean, hey, time spent in the 3rd Infantry Division, you know, you're dealing with a lot worse scenarios and situations and death and, and all that. And so that, that kind of helped it. It wasn't nonchalant approach to it all. It, it, it hurt, it sucked, but, um, that helped a lot and go through it. So we evaluated, we said, what did you do specifically though, to get through it? Because 
these had to have been somewhat trying times from an introspective standpoint, from a what could you have done different standpoint, you know, from a practical business decision standpoint. And we talked off the record about, you know, mitigating factors, but there's things you can control and things you can't control, right? And sometimes the things you can't control have a bigger impact, but how did, how you, like mentally, emotionally, how did you get through it? Uh, I guess I just, you know, been around the block enough that uh, I'm in a, in a, I have a, I have a mode of operation that is, is, is suited and prepared to be able to handle that. I didn't actually do anything deliberately uh, and specific and intentional to get through that time. It was trying, but I already know what do you do when you're going through trying times? What do you do when you're being shot at? When you've been two, two guys just die in front of you and things like that. You just, you, you have process and things that you go through and then you, you, you deal later. Yeah. There was some emotional, you know, fetal position, you know, uh, situations after uh, but in, when the bullets were flying, so to speak, uh, we we said, okay, you know, um, step one: should this continue for the right reasons? We said we came to a conclusion: yes, it should. Step two: what do we need to do to survive? Um, and we went through a list of all we need to do to survive. Step one on that was uh, cut expenses to the the core. And you know, you do things like, for example, um, we are we were running a three or four thousand dollar AWS server bill. And that was fine, not a ton of money, but it all of a sudden became a lot of money. And we're like, why would we shouldn't be spending that? And my co-founder was like, look, it's not worth our time to optimize it then, but it is now. And we got that down to 500 without losing um, core capabilities, which made us laugh because like, you know, there's so much money being left on the table for AWS customers. And I'm sure Amazon knows that. But um, so we did all of that. And then number two was objective lose no customers. And we didn't. Well, what do you have to do to not lose customers when your entire support staff that was supporting those customers goes away? You got to automate stuff. So feature development went to zero. We automated and we were at the point where two guys could run all the reports and do all the support. So we built a lot. Now we're like, wow, we got this thing on rails. Not every business can do this, but it it sounds like to me too, that you you kind of hit a point where you realized that you you already felt in your in your mind and heart that this that this your future should be secure with the product. It had validated itself anecdotally, financially, all of that at one point in time, right? right. Uh, having to let go of the staff forced you though to see once again that the I'm going to call it the product. I know there's more to it than that, but that the product didn't depend upon certain people, like didn't require this account manager, didn't require this specialist necessarily. Like the product needed to be built in by itself. You had to build automation hooks into it to account for some of that. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like it also forced you to make sure that the product all by itself wasn't buoyed up by people that represented it in a in a great way. Not that you're not going to get back there again, right? You really you bring up something that I actually think about a lot, and I don't know that we'll. I feel like I'm saying that people aren't important, and that's no, not what no, I'm no. suggesting. But no, because it's easy to fall in, and trust me, I've had late nights where I've wondered this, laying in bed. Um, you know, so we did some automation of um, administrative automation and some core, like like we have this thing where we call report season, right? Because most agencies need their reports by the first week of the month for the previous month, and so we just finished it before I came out to LA. And report season used to be horrific for us. It was all hands on deck. And it's funny, as I came out here, I was a little bit nervous about coming to LA and literally doing this talk and all that with report season just ending. And it was like, it was a really smooth report season. And I thought, 
thank God we built all those tools. And then I say, why didn't we build them before? And it wasn't like we were using inexpensive people doing them necessarily. It was that those tools needed to be built. They would have been built eventually because we weren't going to just have one customer support person. We wanted to have a thousand customers and we're not going to hire a thousand people. So the tools had to be built. It's just that when you lay everybody off, you had to rearrange stuff. We went for six months in a feature desert, you know, where we just didn't improve anything feature-wise. And now we're back to improving features and adding new customers. And so it's great. But, um, and frankly... Um, none of this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been forced no, to No, it, it wouldn't have. And so it's funny how sometimes we don't seek wisdom. It's thrust upon us. Like, we have wisdom now, but I didn't want it. <laughs> Yeah. I, I wanted to do it my way and whoever now I'm seeks wiser. wisdom then gets it. Come on. <laughs> but it's it's That's funny how that works. Errand. Funny how that works. And now you are all the wiser for what people will expect of the product and how you can use it most effectively to serve them as their provider that you might have spent another three to five years having to figure out if you if things that if you had picked up funding, you know, six months ago, a year ago or something like that, you you may not have figured out some of these lessons as fast. Uh, you're, you're, no or doubt, no not. doubt. And is there an organic growth path for us? Uh, growth path for us going forward? Yeah, there is, and it will be slow, and it will survive, and it will be great. And you know, we've made some tweaks and adjustments that are good. But you know, I I still think that we'll do an A because um, we will have worked out so many of the kinks that I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I want to grow organically. I want to really shoot this off and capture as many customers as I can right now. So, you know, I don't, looking back and having read a bunch of stuff on other people's journeys and everything, I, um, I realized that the story I just gave you isn't exceptional. It's the norm. Even for success, there are the occasional, you know, I had this idea. I got funded six months later. You know, I sold the company three years later for $314 million. I'm like, we love to write books about those folks, right? And that's great. But if I had told you that when you were going through the worst of it, you would have been like, that doesn't help me right now. Well, it's certainly not. It's I, just the truth. It's not, it maybe not as consoling as it, when yeah. you're, when you're in the throes, but it's, it's the reality though. Right. So, and that's okay. I, 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 you know, um, and you asked a question earlier and you mentioned, you know, would you do it all over again? And I always lump that into two categories of answers. Okay. There are things that I would do over again. And most, almost everything I've done in my life, I would do over again. There's a bunch of things I wouldn't do twice. And I just, I make that distinction. West Point's one of them, right? I would go back and do West Point over again. I'm not going to do it twice. I will go back and do it again for the first time. Um, well, doing it twice is like, I've done it once. I'm not going to do it again, right? I'm done with that. But, um, you know, I wouldn't do it again or I would ever, you know, I w- is like, I wish I had never done it or I wouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have done it and I don't want to do it right kind of thing. But I couldn't think of anything that I'm like, eh, I wish I hadn't done that. No, I've made decisions I wish I hadn't made, but I haven't done things I wish I hadn't done. It's, so. it's, it's funny how certain things are not going to happen in your, in your life if this other thing had not happened first. Well, let's just talk in closing here about the next 12 months. What do you envision for Pan Amplify for the next 12 months? Let's just limit it to that. Yep. No, no, that's a good. I like the horizon because I actually have an objective that's on the wall. We um, we want to get to a million ARR, and that means we have to triple our revenue. And it's it's achievable. We've altered our 
our customer mix. We accepted smaller agencies. We are no longer accepting them. And that's good um, because uh, we've adopted a, the amount of support necessary for a small agency isn't commensurate with the pay that they'll provide. And the it's not that they're bad customers. It's that um, they need a more self-serve model. Self-serve model means more technology. We've chosen not to prov- to build the technology. We may one day, you know, like Salesforce, right? We're, Salesforce has the you know the individual price person. We are avoiding that right now and going after um, deer. Uh, did you know that you know the uh, the rabbits, deer, elephants analogy? No, I don't. Okay, when you're well, a, I know the elephant analogy. I know the hunting elephants. You when you elephants. when you uh, sell products, you sell to either rabbits, deer, or elephants. Right, rabbits are generally the individual consumer type. Deer are who we kind of sell to right now, and we're going to start inching up toward elephants. But you know, you got to be careful if you're a startup that sells to an elephant. You got to be prepared to eat the elephant when you shoot it. And we're not. We couldn't eat an elephant right now, so we're getting bigger deer. Um, and you know, got to get to millionaire. That's wise. All right. So now I'm going to give you three rapid fire questions to end this interview. I call it my three in one segment. <laughs> Not a whole lot of thinking is allowed with each of these. <laughs> but first, I want to know one principle or value that you hold dear that most people would disagree with. Most people don't think that I hold it dear? No, most people don't hold that same principle. Most people don't stick to that principle or that value. Forgive everyone. All right, one more. What is one trait or attribute that you try to hold on to no matter the circumstances? Uh, my faith. All right. And one more, uh, a person that you aspire to be like or take your cues from in life? My father. He's a retired general. He turned 80 last last month. Um, and the man does no wrong in my eyes. That's brilliant. Mike, thanks so much for the time today. It has been my honor and pleasure. Thank you. That was Mr. Michael Pratt, co-founder of Pan Amplify. Next week, I'll introduce you to the coolest travel company you probably don't know, TripTuner, and its CEO, Ted Evers. He's been going strong for eight years with a distributed team and a super cool online travel planner. All right, thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Millo and admin of the Millo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Abrar, for helping put this episode together. And of course, to our friends at the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate. A sonic universe.